Hello and welcome to Global Sanctuary for Elephants' brand new podcast, Global Rumblings. Global Sanctuary for Elephants, or GOC for short, is a non-profit organization with a mission to create vast safe spaces for captive elephants where they are able to heal physically and emotionally, often from very traumatic pasts. I'm your host, Nadia Mari, and I'll be taking you to the lush jungle of the Mato Grosso region in central Brazil, home of GSE's initial project, Elephant Sanctuary Brazil. Currently home to six female Asian elephants, lovingly referred to as the girls. Hi, and welcome to episode one of Global Rumblings. We are all really excited to be here with you today. The idea for this podcast has been in the pipeline for a little over a year. On today's episode, I am joined by none other than Kat and Scott Blaze, co-founders of GSE, and I'll be asking them how it all began. Hi, Scott. Hi, Kat. How are you? Hi, Nadia. Hey, we're, we're okay. <laughs> we're good. How are you? Yeah, getting through autumnal uh, Germany. What's the weather like in Brazil? Make us envious. It is perfect as always. It's stunning today. Uh, we're looking out over the valley and down through the middle of the sanctuary, and it's just uh, nothing but spectacular here. Oh, wonderful. So, how did it all begin? Why elephants? That's something I've always asked myself. I'm sure that the followers have also asked themselves that. Why elephants? Was there a specific incident? Was it just, I don't know, just by chance? How did you get into your work? <laughs> this is a great question, Nadia. Uh, how long do we have? Uh, you know, this is, you know, we're really excited to have this podcast and opening up and to be able to talk about the past and be able to bring people along on the journey. Uh, it's been a long journey. Uh, they, you know, ultimately the journey for me started almost 35 years ago. Um, wow. And it was by chance uh, working at a safari park, park as a young kid and uh, interested in, in working around animals initially with marine mammals, but didn't have marine mammals close to me and uh, just lucked out, had a chance to start working in the, around the elephant department at a safari park. And it evolved from there. Um, initially, just out of curiosity and interest and intrigue and turned into a passion. Uh, a lot of what I learned then was the dark side of working with elephants, uh, working with you know, with training, with shows, with demonstrations, public, you know, uh, education programs. And a lot of it was dominance based with the elephant management. And uh, fortunately, the elephants opened my eyes to what their lives were really like behind the facade of education and entertainment. And they are the ones that inspired us to do more, inspired us to to look further and and, uh, and try to create a better life for them. And I don't know how far deep you want to go into that. I mean, that's a good beginning and and how and cat how did um elephant advocacy or uh, your work for elephants start how did you was it did you go obviously scott said that he came from from the industry so he saw the dark side and and, and but why not cats or why not um i don't know dogs why elephants with you cat well unlike scott when i was 15 years old <laughs> <laughs> i was hanging out with friends and doing much of nothing yeah i wasn't an elephant person you know i'm not one of those people who's like ever since i was younger i've always loved them for me it was just kind of a progression i was in 
the veterinary field and true to my nature, just continued to get bored. You know, you can only see so many dogs with ear infections and diarrhea before you want to do something else. And I tried different specialties and was still bored. So I went back to school and they wanted me to do two internships in an area I had never worked in. So for me, that was pretty limited. I had done a lot by that point with wildlife rehab and everything else. So one was at a wolf sanctuary and the other was at the elephant sanctuary. And I never left the elephant sanctuary, essentially. So that's the elephant sanctuary in Tennessee, which Scott co-founded in 1995. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, and, and elephants have a way of doing this. Once they get a hold of you, you just can't get away. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a weird thing. I mean, I, I lived in New York. I had my own life. I didn't expect to move to the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, to essentially work with elephants. And if you had told me that's what I would have done a year before, I would have laughed. Um, but there's something about them that I didn't even know was really a thing. You know, as an intern, you do a lot of grunt work and cleaning and all sorts of things. But at that time, we were also able to spend time just watching the elephants. And you can see the way they are with each other and their relationships with each other are, they're so dynamically beautiful. They're so, so many of them come from such terrible lives and have so many emotional issues, yet they open themselves up to each other in ways that it's almost hard to imagine making yourself that vulnerable when you're in such a hurt place yourself. But they're so gracious with each other and, you know, willing to give up their own desires for another. And like you said, it's kind of that thing of you sit there and watch them and at the end of six weeks, I was asked if I would stay and essentially I said no, um, cause I like my life <laughs> in New York. <laughs> yeah. I like being able to get Thai food at three o'clock in the morning and my friends and my cute little house. But on my last day there, I watched uh, a show called the urban elephant that national geographic had done. And it was on two of the elephants there, Shirley and Jenny, who, when they ended up at the sanctuary together. They initially didn't realize they had known each other in the past. It was only by watching their interactions that they realized that it was very different from all of the other elephant introductions they had done. So when they looked back, they had known each other like 26 years prior when Shirley was older and Jenny was more of a calf. And they had this amazing relationship and the piece was done very well, of course. And at the end of it, I had the thought of this is something I would watch at home and be like, this would be an amazing place to work. I'm like, and they're asking me essentially if I want to work there, even though I have no elephant experience. And I'm like, no, nah, thanks. So talk to my dad, changed my mind. And that was that. And she never walked away from elephants again. And she never walked away from elephants again. So as they say, an elephant never forgets when you talk about the, the relationship of these two elephants who, who knew each other before. We've jumped quite a bit forward. We, we did a, a, a nice little jump forward. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we went from Scott working as a young kid at a safari park and sort of marine animals, and then it was elephants, cat, her veterinary background, and then working at Tess. But 
you co-founded TESS, which is Tennessee Elephant Sanctuary, for those of you who don't know, and in 1995. So what sparked that? We'll go back a bit. What sparked that, Scott? Was that because, as you said, you saw the dark side of, of, of captive elephants in, in circuses and zoos and that it wasn't all that cut out to be? Yeah, you know, exactly that. When, when you start working with elephants, especially at a, uh, or I shouldn't say we, when, when I started working with elephants at a young age, especially a young guy, um, and you are thrown into this world of, you know, working around elephants and, you know, just the majesty of them and, and the the allure of, of who elephants are. And, and a lot of it does get caught up in that entertainment world and there are a lot of people that would visit the facility and say this is the best place to work and you get to bring elephants into the woods and you you know are learning from the best trainers available and you have a breeding facility it's just you know one of the best places in the world to work um and you hear that often enough and initially it's like wow this is aren't i lucky everyone's telling me i'm lucky and and i was very fortunate but when you start to think look at it from the outside when you take it half a step back and look in to see what we're doing and you kind of open your heart a little bit more it's it's pretty grim it's pretty brutal uh it's not pretty grim it's really brutal what those elephants endure and and how much is sacrificed how much they sacrifice uh for survival in that in that world that humans have created for them and start to question if this is the best of the best um how horrible must it be everywhere else? Because this is pretty horrible. You know, this is pretty tragic. And that really started the line of thinking of what else can be done for elephants. But then you had a couple of incidences specifically where you realized that they were more than you were seeing through dominance. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, for for, for me and my history here, there's so many pieces. And then, you know, in this, uh, you know, trying to share the stories, I mean, you know, we could, we could spend five episodes of our new podcast on <laughs> on before the sanctuary. I mean, there's so much that happens in those years and so many details of negative yeah. experiences and, 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 you know, going as, as dark as being involved with the abusive beatings and the dominance and, and starting to feel what that feels like. And, and, and outside of, of all the brainwashing that occurs uh, as young, as young person in that, in that field, um, but then there are moments where, you know, these elephants kind of open up to you a little bit and it's almost like they see this opportunity, this tiny little opening and they pry it open as quick as they can. And they never let your heart close again. And that happened a couple of times. And in one instance in particular with an elephant named Rasha, and I was encouraged to approach her a little bit differently and just to give her reassurance because she was a very insecure elephant. And, um, so I was just gave her a little bit of insurance. Hey, Rasha, we're all good. I'm just going to give you a bath. No big deal. Um, and she responded with complete cooperation, uh, super easy, very gentle, very kind. Uh, we did the whole bath routine and I went over afterwards to say, you know, Hey, good girl. Thank you. And she expressed what I felt as an, a depth of appreciation that I never imagined would come from them. And it was the first time I had felt anything reciprocal that way. It was always the human side um, and the human dominant side and us dictating all of it. And it was the first time that an elephant had, that I recognized anyway, that an elephant then came back in the opposite direction saying thank you um, and recognizing and feeling like she was expressing something toward me and that expression of gratitude. Thanks for the reassurance. Thanks for the understanding. Thanks for just taking a second to acknowledge where I was. 
And thank you for the respect you showed her. Thank you for the respect. And and it was a subtle thing to do, but profound in its impact. And that was really the again, this this door got blown open at that point. And then how can you turn back? Yeah. You know, how can you then turn a blind eye and, and then go back to to not listening to them again? And it really opened this quarter of realizing how much we are removing from their lives, how much we are, are, are subjecting them to and not giving them any sort of voice. And it started the trajectory, uh, the pathway of what can we do to give elephants more of a life? Um, when you look at it financially, it's difficult. How are you going to support giving elephants in life? Um, you know, they're expensive. You know? yeah, uh, <laughs> there's, there's payments, there's elephant care. I mean, it's expensive. So how do you do that? And the first thought was to try to move elephants to Costa Rica where they could have a, a beautiful habitat and do safari treks for two hours out of the day. We were still going to be dominance and it's still going to be management, but we were trying to remove as much of that as possible, but still find a way to support it. And it wasn't the right pathway forward, but it was the first consideration. Maybe we can do something for 22 hours a day. It can be their life for two hours a day. They do treks. Okay. It's much better ratio than what they had in anywhere else, but still not the right answer. Uh, for all the right reasons that didn't work out. And then we actually decided to, uh, try to, connect ourselves with a zoo or other facilities that had uh, more space and an established institution uh, where they had visitations and just to try to amplify the space that elephants had and move away from the close contact and create a space that was just for elephants where people could just observe elephants from a distance. Um, and a lot of the places we talked to just some said, yeah, 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 great. But, you know, I don't think that's what people want or, you know, we don't know how it would sustain itself in the long term. Uh, until we met up with the zoo in Nashville, Tennessee. And at that point, uh, my co-founder, uh, Carol Buckley, uh, she had an elephant named Tara. She was also working at the safari park at the, at the time when all of this started happening. These changes started evolving in, in, in my mind, in my experience, in my heart. And we ended up at the Nashville Zoo and with Tara, who was owned by Carol, and Tara was also pregnant. And the idea was that Tara was going to have her calf at the National Zoo, and then we were going to develop an open, a, a more of a uh, open space for the elephants. And the zoo, after the calf was stillborn, the zoo quickly closed their mind on that door. They closed the door very quickly because they saw the loss of revenue that they had hoped to have by a baby elephant. And the lack of revenue did not allow them to move forward. But it was there that opened our eyes to so many things, not only during all the tragedy of the, the calf being stillborn and all of the unknowns and uh, kind of a slap in the face when people immediately after this calf was stillborn, uh, our colleagues would say, you have to breed her back right again, uh, bring her, breed her back right again, huh? right away <laughs> again. So the cash cow, baby, baby, elef uh, baby elephants, baby animals and zoos are the magnet. She's primed for it. She's ready for it. Let's breed her. This is the, you know, of the utmost importance. Having no consideration for what could have happened to Tara. She could have ruptured her uterus. She could have had many other complications. We could have lost Tara in the process. And no one cared about that. No one saw that. It's just the cash cow. It's just a baby elephant. And it's all about prestige. It's not about saving the species. It's just about another elephant captivity to bring more money in. Um, the other thing that happened was during our time there, because Tara was an only elephant, we were available to the public quite a bit. And uh, as we were, she was an exhibit animal. And 
we were there to be hang out with Tara, but also since we we're hanging out with Tara, we would answer questions to the public. And that was really another slap in the face because the first two questions that were asked by visitors were, can we divide her and does she do tricks? And that was the value that people had uh, or saw in an elephant is what can they do for, for us? It wasn't this beautiful, amazing elephant in front of us. It was what can she do for us? Same elephant, same facility, same guest. When we would take Tara out of her exhibit and she was in a picnic area, grass area, and uh, it was just surrounded by sidewalk and we'd ask all the patrons to stay on the sidewalk and Tara would be grazing, just methodically eating grass, doing what elephants do 20 hours out of the day. And the number one comment was, I didn't know elephants eat grass. So it's education. I mean, you know, pe people, I mean, I, I, I grew up and I think I did go to a circus. I think my, yeah, my parents did take me to a circus. I can't remember seeing elephants. I remember seeing lions jumping through, um, through firing so in the end i mean that is i mean i'm born 1969 yes everyone knows my age now and um so th th that is how we how we were brought up animals for our entertainment exotic animals you know in a circus exotic animals and zoos on display so has that at the point then i presume people saying yes an elephant is there for being for, for our entertainment for riding it's sad but yes this is value that we have created. You know, those yeah. that are responsible, we're the ones working with these animals. We're creating this space for this false education. Yeah, we are. We are sacrificing the who these elephants are for false education. We're not even. We're not even sacrificing, sacrificing to better our world. We're sacrificing to destroy it because people will learn more about them through documentaries, through nature films, through all these other sources than we are what we're doing in this captive scenario. So. That was a big push forward again because we're realizing how wrong this this environment is, not only for the animals, but for the education value as well, for conservation. I mean, everything is completely false. And I mean, at this time, there wasn't, you know, we talk about working with elephants dominant space. There was no protected contact management of elephants at that point. Um, they started it with marine mammals, but at that point, it hadn't shifted over to elephants. Elephants was a male dominance based position. It was a bunch of men who seemed very pleased with themselves that they could get this large animal to do what they wanted. And it's the same thing with zoos. It was tiny little enclosures that didn't allow them to express any of their natural tendencies. You know, enclosures we would later on learn that damaged them not only emotionally, but physically. But that was what it was at the time. And as is often the case, pushing forward through that is uncomfortable. You know, nobody wants to be the person to do something different because it's not easy and you're met with a lot of resistance. I mean, the zoo community said, you know, elephants would become rogue and you wouldn't be able to handle them and they would kill people and so on and so on. But at some point, you have to try to do something. So I just like to pick up on two words because I mean they're very sort of you. Uh, I can hear like you said the, the dark the dark side of the safari park. You've mentioned dominance and you've mentioned beatings. So maybe for for listeners who do not know, there is a a, a misconception that elephants are I'll say domesticated. So just like I ride a horse, I mean a horse has to be broken in as well. But I can like ride a horse so I can ride an elephant so this this myth that elephants are domesticated so it's okay to ride them and to have them do tricks that is something 
which the zoo and circus world still then use as their excuse. Yeah, but domestication by definition, it's... Is not. No, it's breeding for specific traits through many, many generations to create a specific being. And that has not been done with elephants at all. They're still very much so wild animals. And most of the things that you see, like riding an elephant, being able to bathe an elephant, being able to stand next to an elephant and take a selfie, that only happens through dominance management. I mean, this elephant doesn't want you on their back. This elephant doesn't want one person every 15 minutes that they don't know in their face, touching them, standing next to them, taking photos. I mean, it's just like, people. yes, maybe I hug one person or two people, but if somebody that I didn't know came up to me every 20 minutes and just walked up and baited my space, hugged me, regardless of what I wanted, you know, I wouldn't be very pleased. And it's the same thing. You're putting them in a scenario where they're forced to allow touching and affection, even if it comes from a good place where people don't realize, you know, or don't think about it. It's just not accepted unless there is dominance behind essentially forcing them to allow all of these things to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all the, all this then culminated and came together and you decided then how was then the sanctuary in Tennessee then founded? Obviously, um, in the end, it comes down to money. How, how do you, as you said, how, how do you pay for such a, to keep ele an elephant? You know, they're large, they eat a lot. So you need land, minimum requirements. So how did you then get around um, or how did you then decide to, Scott, to co-found then I was, was Carol Buckley, then the um, elephant sanctuary in Tennessee? Then you just said, okay, we're going to go nonprofit and raise funds. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it wasn't quite that easy. Just like that. <laughs> it's like magic. Uh, you know, sanctuary is a pretty magical place, but not, not that kind of magic. No, you know, it was it was still part of a journey. There was a lot of discussions that took place. And, and again, those several realizations that something needed to change on all levels. Uh, and the final straw for us was actually an elephant named Tyke, uh, who she was on traveling a circus in Hawaii. Uh, she killed her trainer, ran out in the street, and then was gunned down with, I don't remember how many hundreds of shots. Yeah. Uh, 97 bullets. 97 oh. bullets to shoot her in the street after she had, and she was, was we're watching, actually on Dateline NBC, uh, one evening, we're watching this unfold and watching this video take place. And she's so scared. And she's it's terrified. so clear in the video that they show how frightened she is. She's not aggressive yes with her trainer she finally lashed out after who knows how many years of dominance and abuse and she was known to be a skittish elephant and it was recommended that she not be taken on the road but that's always ignored because they do what you tell them to but she was so 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 scared and it was it was horrible <laughs> and in that moment is when we looked at each other on, on the couch and said we have to do something now uh we don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know how to do it, but we have to do something now because these elephants have no time left. Uh, these elephants like Tyke who have shown over and over and over again, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I don't belong here. And she stays on the road because no one else wants her or the circus doesn't want to get rid of her. Uh, even if you no know, USDA confiscated somebody, they have nowhere to put them. You know, so we said we need a solution. Um, we, that's when we, prior to that, we had been looking for potential private investors that could help us raise the money to, to buy land, uh, not even thinking about the nonprofit aspect of it. Uh, but when this happened, we had said, we just need to do it. 
let's pool our savings, let's buy a small piece of land, and let's see if we can help four elephants. Uh, we started looking at land and found a piece of land in Tennessee. Um, it was 110 acres, and we decided to go ahead and put an offer on the property. Of course, it wasn't so simple either. We looked at multiple, many, many pieces of land in many different areas. Uh, you know, the, the little bit longer story, uh, longer part of that story was Carol had gone to look at a couple pieces of property and went to go look at this one in particular. And she came back and she said, it's, it's not right for all these reasons. And I said, let me go look at it also. So at least we had the same foundation, the same benchmark. Uh, so we know what didn't work for you there. So if we go and look in different directions, because we still had an elephant take care of, we couldn't go at the same time. And I came back and as I uh, was going back to the elephant enclosure, uh, I had one of the, the keepers of the zoo said, you know, Carol said, you found a property that was pretty amazing. And I said, that's not what she told me yesterday. You know, she had told me that it wasn't right. <laughs> I was like, which Carol are you talking to? Um, so I actually went to the enclosure and she looked at me. She said, it's perfect, isn't it? And I said, I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, so we started moving forward. Again, we were still looking for other lands to make sure we were making the right decision. But as we moved forward, we decided to uh, put an offer on that property. And as fate has the way of working out, uh, the day we put an offer on the property, somebody had contacted the zoo because they also saw the incident and dateline at some point. And they contacted the zoo say, I don't know what I need to do, but I want to help elephants. And uh, the zoo actually didn't even know what we were doing at that time. Most It was still very private. It was still very confidential with some of our close colleagues and friends. And we decided to, uh, this, the zoo put this person in contact with us. And we told her what we were doing. We ended up meeting with her family, who had a lot of influence in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and we told them what we were doing. They said, great, we want to join you. We want to get you started as a nonprofit organization. We have you know, a lawyer, we have a doctor, we have a communications expert, and we want to bring these people together to help start this organization, help co-found this organization with you. And they just took off from there. There's a lot of pieces in between all of this. I mean, it was a lot of time. It was a lot of heartache. It was a lot of stress, a lot of questions. Are we doing the right thing? Uh, but you know, this is sometimes you got to just pull the plug and, and, and run forward. There was some magic involved after all. And when you say perfect, um, I mean, I visit you, was lucky to visit you in October 2018 in uh, your pilot project in Brazil. We'll be getting on, we're, we're really jumping here, but we'll go back to Tennessee. I mean, that was in Brazil, your property is magnificent, perfect. But what is perfect at the time? What was perfect for you in Tennessee, like in Brazil, you've got you've got rivers, you've got mountains, you've got grasslands. What were you looking in, in Tennessee, which was also affordable? I mean, after a zoo, I presume everything is perfect for an elephant. But what specifically were you looking for for your first property? Or was it just we need a, a big field and a, and a river and that's it? That's fine. So what is perfect? Yeah. So you asked a good question about what was perfect at that time. Um, so at that time, uh, in our <laughs> trying to figure out what's next for elephants, um, we were breaking the mold at that point. No one had ever given elephants space in captivity. Uh, no one had ever thought and never, and never moved forward with this idea of giving them a life that is their own. Um, again, when you're breaking the mold, when you're doing something different, uh, there's a lot of resistance. And every time we talked to one of our colleagues, uh, they would say, you're crazy. It's not going to work. The elephants are going to become rogue. They're going to destroy the property. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to manage it. And I mean, everything that you could think of that was a negative, uh, <laughs> negative view of what might 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 happen. 
but where we were at that time in our heads is, you know what? Nobody knows. Uh, it may be that that's what will happen, but let's give it a try because everyone just is sharing their belief of what will happen, their theory of what will happen without having ever done any captivity before. Uh, so when we were looking for land, um, of course, there was no set size, no benchmark to look for of what we're, what's going to work for elephants. How many acres does an elephant need? Uh, how will the land sustain itself with elephants on the property? None of all that was completely unknown. There was nowhere to look that would give us any indication of what would happen in a captive scenario. Uh, so we randomly picked, um, you know, about 100, and, 100 acres is what we're looking for, 100 to 150 acres. We were based that on uh, the money we had available for the land purchase and uh, what we could sustain, what we thought we could sustain with, with loan payments. Um, we were looking for something that was secluded, um, that was private, that had uh, hills, trees, pastures, ponds, uh, springs are ideal. Uh, but that was primarily it. We wanted trees for them to explore and we wanted pasture for them to graze. Uh, and we wanted water sources for them to be able to play in and and, uh, and and drink from, and then it needed to be secluded. Uh, what we found was exactly that. And it was at the end of a little half mile road and uh, access was very good at that time. Uh, we weren't even thinking about access. We weren't thinking about electric. We weren't thinking about any of those things. We were trying to figure out what was gonna be best for the elephants. And uh, what we found was really idyllic. Um, near a small town, we were only about five kilometers or three miles away from the, the, the little town center, but it felt like you were a lifetime away once you entered the property because of the seclusion that, that the property offered. Um, you know, from there, um, everything changed for us. <laughs> you know, this idea of what could be or what should be or what, you know, might be, I mean, we didn't even touch the surface in our dreams of how profound it ended up being. And uh, the land started it, but from there, you know, the elephant showed us the rest of the way. Well, I've, I'm uh, looking. I'm looking at the clock, and I know you do. You do have to go because you do have a, a sanctuary to run in Brazil. So um, I think I would say we'll 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 wrap up for this week and. Um, discuss more about how the change came from Elephant Sanctuary, Tennessee, and uh, how you both ended up in, in, in Brazil. And so we'll talk about that in our next episode. And I'd just like to say thank you very much for your time, Kat, and for your time, Scott. And it was really lovely talking to you. And I could, uh, yeah, I could listen to you for hours, but uh, unfortunately, we don't have that much time this week. Well, lucky for you, Scott can talk for hours. <laughs> 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 and lucky for all of us elephants are traveling so we have to go nadia okay. thank you for this introduction and uh, we look forward to talking next time okay great have a good week take care bye bye, bye. we hope you enjoyed the first episode of global rumblings don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode see you next time mm.